All right. Well, good morning. Some of you, good to see you this morning. Before we dive into our message, I've got a few quick announcements for us. The first one is a reminder that today our rotation of FFH, or Faith Family Hospitality, begins. And so for the next couple of weeks, we are going to have families staying in our church building, families without a home, and we're just going to try to, try to care for them. And so we could still use some, some help there. Um, there are some slots that need to be filled, uh, cooking meals during the evening or, or even staying overnight. Usually we have a couple men stay overnight um, just to keep an eye on things. And so um, if you'd like to fill one of those slots, go to our, our, our website and the events page and you can sign up through, through that. A uh, couple other things. Um, next Sunday, this is for next Sunday, uh, right after church, we're going to have two things happening. One is we're going to have an interest meeting for a potential mission trip to Costa Rica, which will likely happen next spring break. So if you're interested in uh, um, taking a mission trip to Costa Rica, we're going to have an interest meeting after church next Sunday. And also we are going to have a flyover. And the flyover is a, a newcomer's, a, a visitor's welcoming event. And so it's just a chance to meet a couple pastors and get any, and, any questions answered. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's dive in now. So we have been, for the last many weeks, going through the book of Exodus. And in this teaching series, we are taking a survey of the books of, of Exodus through Deuteronomy. And so, so far, we've been following this narrative of the life of Moses. And we've, we've uh, gone through some of the really pretty familiar events in his life, his, his birth and his confrontation with Pharaoh and the parting of the Red Sea and Mount Sinai and the Golden Calf and, and these kinds of stories. We're going to continue to go through that narrative. However, within that narrative, within that history, of course, God also gives the law. And so he speaks the law into these events. And God gives commands. And he gives many commands, hundreds of commands, and detailed instruction on how to live. And so, starting today, we are going to not only continue to go through that narrative and, and trace that storyline of how Moses leads the people across the desert out of slavery and to the promised land, but we're also going to take a look at the law itself and a little bit more of a, a theological treatment of the law. And we're going to do that this morning, at least in, in introduction. We're not going to complete that, um, that, that survey of the nature of the law, but we're going to start it today, and then we'll sprinkle some me messages about that throughout the next few, few months. Now, before we get into that, I wanted to make the kids aware of something. So, as you know, we have the kids, the elementary age kids, in the service over the summer. Usually, they're in their classes during the school year. Um, but during the summer, we have them here, and usually we ask a question sometime during the sermon about the sermon, and the kids have an opportunity to, to, opportunity to answer that question and win a prize. And so you'll have that, that opportunity again this morning, but it's going to be a little more complicated this morning, actually. We're going to test you. I'm going to make you pay attention throughout the whole sermon this morning. And here's what I want you to look for. You need to look for a green star in the corner of a slide. You know, I'm going to have a bunch of slides. We're actually going to go through a lot of information this morning. But on three of those slides, there's going to be a green star in the corner. And on those slides, there's going to be a word underlined. And so I want you to look for those words. And then at the end, I'm going to ask you what these three words are. Okay? And these three words are all going to describe something about the Word of God, about the Bible. Okay, so be looking for the green star 
as we go along. Okay, so the law. We're going to get into the law this morning. Now, the law is, is very important. God gave these commands. He gave detailed instruction on how to live, how to order worship, how to even order society in different ways. And when God speaks these kinds of commands, gives these kinds of laws, we should pay attention. After all, God is all wise. He's all knowing. He understands how he made us. He understands how he made the world. And so when he gives instructions and he says, do this or don't do this, we should pay attention and we should respond and we should respond in obedience. We should submit ourselves to what God tells us to do. So with that in mind, I'm going to test us this morning and we're going to pull out a few laws out of the Mosaic law and we're going to see how we're doing. Okay. So we'll start with this one. Leviticus 11, 10 through 11. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. So if you're eating your shrimp cocktail, you are disobeying this law. Okay, let's keep going. Let's give you a couple more. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. So all of you with tattoos, I've seen you. Okay. You're disobeying this law. Next, Leviticus 19.19. 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. And here's the kicker. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Okay, so you can check the tag in the back of your shirt, or do it for your neighbor. Introduce yourself first. <laughs> and if you have a cotton polyester blend, you are disobeying this law. And I get the impression that I am looking at a room full of lawbreakers. Right here. <laughs> and in all seriousness, is that okay? Is it okay that we disregard these, these laws that God has given? After all, we are a church who has a high view of the, of the Bible. We believe these are God's words. And God is all-knowing and all-wise. He had intention in these laws. So is it okay that we just kind of set them aside and disregard them? Or what's more... There, there are bigger questions related to this also. Um, you know, there's a, there's a large conversation in the Christian world, even today, about how much we should or shouldn't use the Mosaic law as our pattern to order society and to order justice. You know, how much should we use the law to, to structure our, our institutions here today? There's also the apologetic question. A skeptical, unbelieving world knows about these laws, actually, as well. And they challenge us with them. And they say, how can you obligate me to follow some of the rules in your book when you don't follow these yourself? Okay, so there's this, this important question that the, the world is asking the church 
and the church needs to respond to well. So, how do we do that? Well, we're going to try to respond to it today, at least begin to. Again, this is a bit of an introduction. We're just given a, a primer on, on how to view the law. I want to read Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. It says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And this this passage is repeated in the New Testament also, in the book of Romans. And it's saying that that the the word, even the law, is accessible. we We can understand it. It's near. We can grasp it. And we can even do it. So what does that mean? How do we do obey the law. It's what we're going to try to tackle this morning. All right, so as we tackle that, first step, first thing that we need to understand is that we have this collection of, of laws, of rules, of commands. Um, really, they are, they are part of a, what, what the Bible calls a covenant, okay, a covenant, a contract, an agreement that God has made with his people. Okay, so he, he made this covenant and he filled the covenant with these stip- stipulations, of do this and don't do this. This is how, you, how the covenant is carried out. After implementing that covenant, though, he, he predicted something. He said there was going to be a new covenant that would eventually come. So the prophet Jeremiah says this. God, through the prophet, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So he says, there's going to be a new covenant. Eventually there will be a new one, not like the one that I gave to Moses when I brought them out of Egypt. And then, of course, Jesus ushered in that new covenant. And on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup after they had eaten, and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, so we had an old covenant, and then Jesus ushered in a new covenant the next question, we understand that from the Bible. I mean, that's not, that's not just trying to, to make something up or, or, or get out of difficult questions. This is what the, the Bible plainly presents, is that there's an old covenant and then there's a new covenant. But the question is, the difficult question is, how do these covenants relate? How much alignment and agreement and overlap is there between the old covenant and the new covenant? How much continuity is there? Is it like the, the Porsche 911? The original version in 1964, and then the modern-day version. And you look at those two cars and you say, those are the, those are the same car. Yeah, I can see that. If, I, if, if there was a lineup of cars in a, a long row and there were these two cars, I'd pick those out and say, yeah, I think those are the same two cars. There's, a, there's a, a lot of continuity there. Or maybe, a little, maybe, or maybe it's more like the Honda Civic. And the original, you have the original and then the modern version. You say, well... Few similarities, but I don't know if I'd pick them out of a lineup and say those are the same car. They're a little, little different. Or is it that they're in completely different categories? Like they're just completely different, and there's, there's really not a whole lot of overlap at all. They're just different. There's not much continuity. This is the question that we're trying to ask. What, what is it like? 
the continuity between the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. This is not an easy question. Jonathan Edwards said this. this is, there is perhaps no part of divinity attended with so much intricacy and wherein orthodox divines do so much differ as stating the precise agreement and differences between the two dispensations of Moses and Christ. Let me translate that into English here. And he's saying, so there's two dispensations or eras. There's the era of Moses and there's the era of Christ. And he's saying there's hardly a topic in all of theology that is disagreed upon more than when asking this question how much agreement or difference there is between the era of Moses and the era of Christ. So, let's try to think about this together. And we're going to, we're going to set up the spectrum between continuity and discontinuity. And people find themselves on this spectrum somewhere as they look at this question. How much continuity is there between the Old and the New Covenant? And I'm going to give some examples, um, uh, some quotes from people that would fall on one side or the other of this spectrum. And we're going to start on the continuity side. And I'm going to quote a, a 20th century theologian named Greg Banson. He would represent this side. He would represent what's, what's called even theonomy. And we're actually going to define some of these terms later in weeks from now. Um, so I'm not going to go into detail right now. But just, just understand that he would represent this side of the spectrum. And he says this, Men have no right to alter or spurn Old Testament laws on their own say-so, social traditions, or preconceived ideas about what is morally appropriate or inappropriate in the Mosaic law. And I would say amen to that. That we can't just on our own whim or preference decide, I'm going to take this law from Moses and I'm not going to take this law. So I'd agree with that. But he takes it a step further and here's the controversial step. He says, Christians ought to work to persuade others of their obligation to the commandments of God, including the civil magistrate of his duty to enforce the penal sanctions of God's law against criminal activity in society. So if you follow that, this is what he's proposing. He's saying, let's take even the punishments or consequences proposed in the Mosaic law and let's enforce them in our society. Many of those punishments are capital punishments for a variety of different crimes. And so he takes a, a step here and says, yes, we should, we should flow the old covenant into our modern day. And that's what he's saying. Let's go to the other side of the spectrum, and I'm going to quote a, a modern, um, actually popular pastor of a megachurch today, and that's, that's Andy Stanley. And many of you may be familiar with Andy Stanley and may have appreciated much of what he, he's had to say, and I, I have as well. But I'm going to quote him um, from a recent book as to how he, he sees the Old and the New Covenant. And what he says, he says, there's a problem with today's church. And here's the problem. It's our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. That's the problem with the church, is that we, we reach back to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And he goes on. He says, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. And then he asks a pretty bold question. He challenges the church with this question. And he said, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? That's pretty strong, actually. Now, I believe that, that each of the positions represented by what I just quoted are, are extreme positions. And I would argue for a position or even positions somewhere within 
those positions. And that's what we're going to try to try to do to, today. Now, let's let's consider how traditionally people have have parsed out the, the old covenant and tried to find their place on this spectrum. Let me give you a traditional way of doing it. And it's this, that there, there is a, a way to categorize the laws within the old covenant. And there's this traditional categorization of, of dividing the, the Old Testament laws into moral laws, ceremonial laws, and civil laws. Okay, moral laws, moral laws do not murder, do not steal. Ceremonial laws that dictate how to worship, perhaps. And then civil laws, how to structure a just functioning society. And so this is a very common way of, of categorizing the Old Testament law. And this goes back at least to Thomas Aquinas, probably, probably further, but it was really codified in the, the Westminster Confession of, of Faith. And, and this is in the 17th century. And, and I'll just read part of that in chapter 19 of the Confession. It, it describes these laws, or these categories of laws. And in point number three there, it speaks of the ceremonial laws and that they are now abrogated under the New Testament. And then he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired, these are the civil laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other. And then the moral laws, but the moral law doth forever bind all. Okay? So the idea is that we have these, these three categories of law, um, but two of them, the ceremonial and the civil, have been fulfilled by Christ, by the ministry of Christ. And so we are obligated to continue to follow the moral laws because they are part of God's unchanging moral nature. Okay, so that's, that's the idea. Now, I think this is a helpful way of, of, of looking at things. Um, to, to understand that, yes, Jesus did fulfill certain things. And, and, and yes, we are obligated to continue to obey moral laws. However, there are a couple problems, at least, with this. Or, 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 or some, some issues with thinking about things in this way. First of all, the Bible itself doesn't explicitly define these categories. And so it's not like the Bible um, says this is a moral law and this is a ceremonial law and this is a civil law. And so that should give us a little bit of, bit of pause. Secondly, sometimes it's difficult to decide which bucket a law should go in. I mean, what is this law? Is it moral or is it ceremonial? And after all, we could go back to Greg Banson, who I quoted earlier, and he would argue for a twofold division. And he says the most fundamental distinction to be drawn between Old Testament laws is between moral laws and ceremonial laws. This is not an arbitrary or ad hoc division, for it manifests, it manifests an underlying rationale or principle. And so he's arguing that, well, those civil laws, they're actually wrapped right into the moral laws. Civil laws are, are a way of expressing God's morality. And so really there's only two categories here. Regardless, it can be difficult. Even some of the laws that I, I mentioned at the beginning, are, are they ceremonial? Are they moral? Are they civil? Where, where do they go? Which, which bucket can we drop them in? So it, it's a little difficult. Here's what I would argue for. I would actually argue that the entire Old Covenant has indeed been abrogated. And we could go to the New Testament. In Galatians, 
Galatians 3 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under, under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And then in chapter 5, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then even more clearly in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 8.13 says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so I would agree with the author of Hebrews here that the old covenant has become obsolete, at least in the way that the author uses the word obsolete. So does that mean, and I'm in the camp of Andy Stanley, strong discontinuity? Well, I would say no. Um, Yes, the old covenant has been abrogated, and yet I still believe in this passage, 2 Timothy 3. That all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is profitable. That includes everything written in the Old Testament, whether it's about shellfish or mixed materials in your garments, it's all profitable. So how do, we, how do we fit this together? Well, <clears throat> let's, let's again, let's, let's try, to, try to think about this. What, what do we do with all these laws? We have this collection of Old Testament laws. And I would propose maybe, maybe think of it, thinking, them, thinking of them in some different categories than what we, we uh, mentioned before. Let me go through a few categories that we can divide these laws up into. First of all, there are some laws that are explicitly renewed in the New Testament. And there's a whole bunch of these. For example, 1 John 5.21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So the Old Testament says don't have idols, and the New Testament says don't have idols. So they both say those same things, and there are lots of laws like that. There are lots of those moral laws that come from God's unchanging moral nature that are simply renewed explicitly in the New Testament. Even nine out of the ten commandments are explicitly renewed in the New Testament. The one that's not is the Sabbath command. That's another can of worms, and we're actually going to take a whole Sunday um, and talk about the Sabbath in a few weeks. Um, But a whole bunch of these commands in the Old Covenant are simply restated in the New Covenant. they're, They're part of both. And there's another category of laws that are explicitly negated in the New Testament. And, and by the way, going, going back one, actually, I wanted to mention, um, there, there are some, some laws that are explicitly renewed in the test, New Testament. This, this probably also includes even categories of laws. Sometimes the New Testament will, will give a, a command about a certain area of, of life, but not go into a lot of detail about that. But it, it, it alludes to or refers back to the Old Testament for more definition of what is meant by that command. Okay, so sometimes it's, it, even categories are renewed. But some laws are explicitly negated in the New Testament. For example, the food laws. So Jesus said in Mark 7, and he said to them, <clears throat> then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since, he, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Okay, so he 
That, that's what Jesus did. When he ushered in the new covenant, he declared all foods clean. So you can eat your shrimp cocktail um, and your bacon. And, and Jesus, Jesus allowed for that. So some are, are negated. And even when they're not explicitly negated, some are, are uh, not carried out in the New Testament church. For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing a situation where there was a man in the Corinthian church who committed gross sexual sin. And Paul addresses him, and then in verse 11 he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So there's actually a pretty stiff penalty here. This man who has committed this awful sin is removed from the fellowship of the church. But if they were following the old covenant law, he would have been stoned. Because this was a capital offense. But Paul does not, not encourage the church to carry that, that out. Okay, so some are, are renewed, some are negated, but then there's the rest of them. What about the rest that aren't addressed one way or the other in the New Testament? This includes our whole garment mystery. What, it, what about these? Well, we are not obligated to obey these laws, however they are profitable. And I believe that although they are, we, we are not obligated to directly obey the specific law, there certainly is a principle or a purpose behind that law that reflects something of God that we can certainly use in application in our own lives. So what we can do is we can understand the specific purpose of the law, we can extract the timeless principle or characteristic of God that influences the specific purpose, and then we can apply that principle to our present situation. So we can, we can think of this um, in, in a few different ways. Let me give a little bit of an analogy. There's a rental lease. So this is a covenant that we're a little more familiar with. We're not familiar with that many covenants, but here's one. Um, we we have, have a rental lease. So before I, I bought a home, I rented a few different residences. And in those leases, I had various rules. One, you shall not have pets living in this residence. Two, you shall not paint the interior walls. Three, you shall, not water, you shall water and mow the lawn weekly during the summer. And so I signed off on these laws. It was part of this covenant that I was under. Now, I, I, I own a home. Or me and the bank, we own it together. And, and so I own a home, and so I'm no longer under this rental agreement. I, I don't have to follow these rules. However, I do understand the reasoning behind these rules. And so when it says, you shall not have pets, well, I understand. They, they um, implemented that rule because they knew that pets, uh, there, there, there would be more wear and tear on the property. And so they, they didn't want to deal with that. And they probably gave me a discount on the price for that. Um, but I understand the reasoning behind that. So I can take that reasoning into my current situation and consider the wear and tear on my own residence and decide whether or not I want to have pets. Similarly, the other ones, the, the last one, number three, well, I, I still do that one. Okay, I still water, or my boys do actually. <laughs> now I can just sit there and watch them mow and water my lawn. But, but we mow, we take care of our yard because that was a principle that carries through and I'd say, yes, that's, that's an applicable principle, and that applies to both situations.
Going back to the Old Covenant, let, let me give you an example of this, the example of the parapet. So Deuteronomy 22.8 says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. Now again, I, I assume very few of us have built a parapet around our, our roof. Um, but we certainly understand the reasoning behind it. And especially at this time, when everybody had flat roofs, and people were entertained on top of the roof, so you built a wall around it so people wouldn't fall off. It was the loving thing to do, to protect those that you were hosting. Likewise, we, when we host people, we, we are concerned about their safety and their well-being, and so we apply the principle behind this, even though we are not required to obey it specifically and directly. Okay, now a quick side note. Our discussion doesn't mean that all the new covenant commands are completely flexible and culturally dependent. Because I think this this is where some can go, where you say, okay, those old covenant commands, they were for a certain situation, for a certain people, so they were flexible. So these commands are probably flexible too. Um, And I say, no, we, we are under a new covenant. And we still are obligated to to obey and follow whatever is written in that new covenant as well. Okay, so all that said, that that was my introduction. Okay, now let me me just, in in our our remaining time, um, make a few more comments because now I want to describe some of the purposes of the, the Old Testament law. The Old Testament purposes, because I'm, I'm arguing here that, that in many of these laws, although we are not directly obligated to obey them, there, there are purposes behind them that are profitable for us. Okay? And so we need to understand some of those purposes. Now, I'm going to go through a few of them here quickly. Now, now there are lots of purposes. And, and specifically, I'm talking about Old Testament purposes. I'm talking about purposes for the people that the covenant was given to. So, so I'm going to share a few, but I'm going to share purposes, um, not, not all of them. I, I was trying to come up with a list of, of purposes, and I came up with at least 10. We're not going to go through all of those, but I did want to highlight a few that I think um, we don't necessarily think of right away, and these are specific ones that help us understand some of those confusing commands. Okay, so that's what I'm going, going for. So these aren't even necessarily the most important important purposes or an exhaustive list, but I think they will give us understanding as we continue to go through the law in the upcoming weeks. Now, before I list these purposes, I'll just say the overall purpose of the law is is love. And Jesus said that and Paul said that the law can be summed up in that word, love. But there are some sub-purposes, and let me give you a few of those. Number one, to set apart a distinct people. Okay, to set apart a distinct people. Leviticus 20, 26 says, You shall be, be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Okay, so, so God is removing a people and he's making them different. He's making them distinct. He's making them special in some way. Now, our reading of that, through our modern sensitivities, we can stumble over that. Because our modern sensitivities are trained to recognize anything that feels exclusive, anything that feels elitist, 
And we say, I don't know if I like this, that God pulled out a people and he wanted to make them special and distinct. A couple things in response to that. Number one, we should understand the, the cultures that he was pulling them out from. Okay, remember, they came from this culture of, of Egypt. And we read about how at the time of Moses' birth, the Egyptians killed all the baby Hebrew boys in order to control the population of the people that they had enslaved. It was, it was wicked. It was a wicked culture. They were also going to the Canaanite cultures who were very similar. And they were known for their brutality and their violence and their child sacrifice. And so that's, that's who they were going to be among. It was very appropriate for God to, to pull these people out of those cultures and create a contrast. He said, you're going to be different than, than those around you. In addition to that, let's remember God's original intention when he first initiated the formation of this people with Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so the intention was to bless everybody. So yes, a, a distinct people was being created, but the intention was for them to, to include eventually. Okay, to bless everybody on the earth. So it was appropriate for him to set apart a distinct people. This helps us understand some of the laws that we read that at first glance are confusing. Again, our garment question. You shall, not, you shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Most likely, this was because they were among peoples who worshipped fertility gods, and those fertility gods were placated and enticed by taking two unlike things and blending them together. So, when two different materials were taken and blended together in a garment, it was probably, among some of those peoples, a way... To, to worship and to get something from, from this God. And so you understand that, and you say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay, I can understand the wisdom behind that. They, God did not want the people to, to um, mingle, blend with those kinds of practices, worshiping those kinds of gods. Right? Probably something very similar with the whole tattoo and shellfish commands as well. Many of these commands that seem confusing and obscure were probably an attempt to make this people distinct from the people around them. Now, when we understand this purpose, now we can apply it to our lives, and it can be profitable, because God also is making us, as the Christian church, a distinct people. We should be different. We should, we should offer a contrast to the world. And... Um, and we should, we, should, we should be different in lots of different ways. You know, this was pretty compelling, actually, for me when I became a Christian in college. I started hanging around with Christians, and initially, I thought, these guys are weird. Okay, they're just strange. And I wasn't sure. Did I really want to be associated with these people? 
But I kept hanging around with them, and eventually I thought, I, th- these guys are weird, but I want it. Okay, it, 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 it is compelling. Okay, I, I, I want to be like these people. Yes, they're different from the world, but in a pretty good way. And, and eventually I, I took that step and aligned myself with them. And so likewise, God is creating a distinct people with us in order to draw people out of the world and set them on a different path. Okay, next purpose that I wanted to highlight is to distinguish between the holy and the common. Leviticus 10 says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So this is another one that we can be a little confused by. He's distinguishing between the holy and the common, and, and, and this, this seems strange to us. Uh, all these laws about... Um, uh, handling things in a certain way and, and treating this particular object in a special way and, and all of this. But again, I think this was, was very important. God was structuring their life and their worship in order to communicate that he was holy. And so many of these different practices that, that they were led into, they, they, they were intended to convince their hearts that God was, was special, God was different, God transcended, God was holy. And that was important for them to understand. And it was important for them to understand that they were um, removed from that holiness due to their sin. And that their sin was a, a big problem and it needed to be atoned for. And so God was creating this whole system that was going to communicate he was holy. The people would know that if they, if they walked in this system, they would understand God is, is holy. Now, this is helpful for us also. You know, I think... Uh, um, sometimes this, in, in, our, in, in the modern church, um, sometimes we can uh, not, not really connect with God's holiness. In our, in our church, we try to communicate that God is very accessible because he is. And we want people to come in here and understand, okay, I can approach God. God is touchable. And so we, we, we play music that is, is accessible and we, we dress pretty casually and, and, and we want to communicate God can be approached. We don't want to lose any of that. And at the same time, we want to make sure that we retain experiences of God where we understand he, is, he transcends. In his holiness, he is, he is other in some way. And so we can take... These, these instructions in the Old Covenant and consider them and see how they are applied to our life in, in trying to, to uh, hold on to a sense of reverence and awe in God. Okay, um, number three, to preserve physical health is another one that we may not, not resonate with right away, or, right away or we may not see. The law contains a variety of laws related to washing, quarantining, and general hygiene. There's lots of different examples of that. And, um, and we read them, and they can be kind of tedious, and, and we can say, what's with all of this cleansing and washing and all of this? But if, God, or if the people had obeyed all of these rules, it most likely would have protected them from a lot of disease and harm. Um, it's really pretty remarkable when you le- read it through that lens that, that God, God was preserving them. He was protecting them from things that were going to 
to hurt them in different ways. This is especially remarkable when you compare it to some of, of, of the, the, the so-called medical knowledge of the day. I'm going to read a little bit from the Ebers Papyrus, dated at approximately 1550 BC, around, around this time, and describes Egyptian medical practices that the people would have grown up with, including the following remedies. Remedy for hair growth in a bald man. Pay attention, some of you. The head of the bald man should be anointed with a mixture of the following, the fat of a lion, the fat of a hippo, the fat of a crocodile, the fat of a cat, the fat of a snake, and the fat of an ibex. Number two, a remedy for a headache. Boil the skull of a catfish and anoint the head with it for four days. And then for swelling of one's limbs, boil plants from the field and tadpoles from the water ditch in oil and anoint the limbs with it. These were the kinds of remedies that were proposed around this time. The Mosaic Law was wildly different. It's all these cleansings and washings and and when you touched a dead person, you had to wash in this, this way. But again, we, we read that and we say, okay, maybe there's an amazing wisdom behind all these laws. And maybe it's a, there's, there's an all-wise God behind them. And so again, we can consider this and we can understand, okay, God, God made us in, in, in physical beings in a physical world. And so we can, we can understand our need to take physical precautions in certain ways. Okay, so these are, are just purposes. I just want to go through these three to hopefully help us, help us understand what was behind much of the old covenant and even those laws that we stumble over. Perhaps there were, there were really good reasons that God, God gave them these, these laws and we can learn to appreciate the law more and more because it is certainly profitable. And I think as we see this and we read it and we read the, the goodness of God in these boundaries that he gave them, we can delight in it. Okay, we can, we can love the law. Psalm 119, 46 through 48. The psalmist in this psalm in particular often speaks like this about the law. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Okay, the psalmist understood the goodness of the law, and I think we can as well, and it's not completely irrelevant for us, even though we are not obligated to to obey the specific parts of the law. Okay, we're going to move to our kids' question right now. So I'm going to have Elise come up here with a mic. And, um, and I'm going to put the next slide up, and we're just going to have, have any child between ages 7 and 12 raise their hand if you know these three words. And then Eliza's going to spot you, and she's going to bring the mic to you, and you can let us know what those words are. Okay. So who thinks they know these three words can fill in these three blanks? I'm Decker Martin, and the three words are near, profitable, and delight. There you go. Nice job. All right, we got a prize. We got a little game and a Dairy Queen gift card for you. There you go. Yeah. All right. 
Okay, so band, you can come on back up now. And let me just, just close it up. So hopefully this, again, this was meant to be an introduction, kind of a primer to uh, help us to begin to understand the law, and we're going to go into more depth in the future. But let me leave you with one, one last purpose of the law. The old covenant was to be a foreshadowing of a more perfect covenant. Okay, and this is, in addition to the, the purpose of love, this is, is, is a main purpose of the covenant. We read the Old Covenant, and we can, I believe, see the goodness and the application in it. And yet, at the same time, it leaves us wanting. Okay, we also recognize that it's not quite complete. Maybe it hasn't been perfected yet. And it causes us to anticipate a complete fulfillment, a perfection of the covenant. It points us ahead. Now, next week, Perry is going to talk to us about the New Testament purposes of the Old Covenant. And those are the real purposes. Okay? Again, this was an introduction. You have to come back next week to understand really what the law was intended for. It was an anticipation, an expectation of what was to come.